0: To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors podcast features Dr. Anubhan Mahatney, Director of Research at The Motley Fool Australia. Anaban's story is grounded in technology, software, and machine learning, having spent the early part of his career as an academic working on complex problems ranging from distributed data to video on demand. During the first 30 minutes or so of this conversation, we talk about Anaban's backstory before diving into the really juicy stuff like competitive advantages afforded to investors with a tech or engineering background, the flow of information through research and how that intertwines with investing, how Anaban values stocks builds a portfolio, and more. Then we end with some rapid-fire investor and technology-focused questions, such as the emerging technologies Anuban is most excited about, why Apple has staying power, the most innovative companies and what defines them, including Apple and Tesla, and of course, we conclude with Anuban's three pieces of advice to his younger self. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast featuring Dr. Anuban Mahatma. Anaband, thanks for taking the time out to join me on the show mate.
1: Thank you for having me here.
0: It's a real pleasure to have you on and I think now with I don't know maybe it's just the way that markets have gone with more investors are coming coming to the light if you like and and seeing that the beauty that is um, technology and software and and all the things that uh, and all the possibilities that that's going to create for our for our world and for investors going forward, I think you're the right person to talk to. One of the things that I like to do at the beginning of every show, is just to hear more about you. A lot of our listeners who are familiar with you, I put out a a message to them on Facebook recently to say, does anyone have any questions for Anaband? And a lot of them wanted to know about your journey um, up until you started investing and then how that prepared you for investing in technology companies. So I know you were a scientist and um, you you have a PhD, um, you spent a lot of time in research before transitioning to investing. But um, I guess I'm just interested, interested to hear your story up until you started investing and how that came to be.
1: That's cool. Uh, you know, uh, not many people ask me this question. So uh, this, is, this is, I guess, an opportunity to relive uh, when I was uh, from little to where I am now. So, um, you know, I come from India uh, and my father is a professor, um, was a professor. Uh, he, was, uh, he, has, he has a PhD in mathematics Uh, So um, from uh, IIT Bombay. And uh, my father traveled basically the world and we got the opportunity to actually travel the world uh, with him. Uh, We lived in many different places, uh, you know, um, places like Iraq to uh, parts of Europe to Canada Hmm. to my father spent a major chunk of his early life actually working abroad and then came back to India. Uh, and uh, started teaching at a place called Birla Institute of Technology, which is one of the sort of engineering schools um, in India, started by um, uh, Mr. Birla, who was one of, uh, one of the big uh, entrepreneurs in India, one of the big entrepreneur houses in India. So the Birla family, the Tata family, mm-hmm. they're sort of, you know, they'd be regarded as um, the big names in, in, in building industrial complexes in India. So most of my... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, teen-plus years were in a place called Ranchi. And and Ranchi is a small town in India, uh, but uh, very educationally focused. So it had really great schools. Um, it had uh, a lot of people with education, a lot of people, you know, who had, ex- who had explored the world and had been to different parts of the world. So that's sort of uh, the, you know, cultural background we had. We also lived in what we call... Uh, campus. So it's like uh, almost like a gated community equivalent here. But the, the difference being that a campus is where people who work at a particular place all live together. Right? So you have you basically are living in a very homogeneous society right. in that sense you know a lot of professors uh, and their families uh, around us. So education was very important to us for the very beginning. There's, there's a little bit of other context here. Uh, in a place like India where uh, you know you have billions of people if you do not have education, it's very difficult to make a living. So um, you almost are by default forced to think about education, right? And business was not something that we were taught to think about early on. Um, so you know we didn't think about business, we didn't really think about money, and we didn't think about um, investing early on. What we thought about was well, you know, you need to work, you'll earn, you'll make savings over time, you'll spend your savings. That's sort of the the background. Mm-hmm. um I got into engineering school I actually studied at Briline Institute of Technology uh doing uh, computer science and engineering um and then like many of my peers uh well I wanted to go abroad to do a you know a master's or a phd mm-hmm. degree so um, I had an opportunity to I got a scholarship at University of Saskatchewan in Canada uh, to do a master's um, degree with a thesis and I um, you know, picked that because we uh, we had a book Uh, On data structures, written by a professor from Saskatchewan called Paul Trombley, and we loved that. And I loved that book. And so I figured, hey, I know this. I know this uh, university. At least I've read a book from this university. So why not go there? So I ended up going uh, to Saskatchewan. And uh, there was another reason I had gone there, which was you know my father had actually done a a postdoctoral position at Saskatchewan. So we had we had familiarity with uh, the place, although nobody told me it's going to be really, really very cold there. So it gets to minus 40 degrees uh, during winter. Say, uh, very cold. Very, very cold. Uh, one of the advantages of that, though, is that, you know, during the winter months, and if you're not Canadian, then you don't know what to do. <laughs> Uh, the Canadians love winter, and you know they have ice hockey, and you know they can go sledging, and all the sorts of things that they do. But you know, if you are like from India, you like you are, the, you just you just basically go to your dorm, or you go uh, go and st- uh, go and do your you know thesis research. Uh, around that time, I had a I actually had a fantastic professor, so Professor Derek Eager, um, and. You know, I think he was one of those professors who was happy if he found a student who was keen to work, keen to do research. So he used to spend, you yeah. know, he spent hours talking about research, um, um, you know, problems, solving research problems together, uh, giving a lot of guidance, but not spoon feeding at the same time. So, you know, he, he's the, actually, I would say he's the person who got me thinking. He's the guy who taught me how to think and think out of the box. Um, and that sort of led me. To, I said, "Okay, I'm going to stick here and do my PhD." And uh, you know, I, I actually had some really good papers out of my PhD, so I didn't have trouble actually getting a job. Uh, after uh, you know, in fact, I had a job offer lined up about a year before I had finished my my degree. So then I, from there, I went on to take a position at uh, as an assistant professor at the University of Calgary, which is uh, equally cold, just slightly less. Um, people, people who have been uh, to mm-hmm. Banff and Witsla would re- recognize, I guess, Calgary. Calgary is the airport that you land if you go to Banff and Again, It's a beautiful part of the world, actually, to go there, the, the Rockies, the Canadian Rockies. Mm, um, there I worked with a bunch of uh, really smart people. So this is sort of the background to how I learned about technology, how I thought about technology. I was working on, um, for my PhD, I was working on streaming videos, so the you know at that time so the, All right. to p- put some context in, 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 in here in terms of timeline, uh, this is I started my PhD in 1999. So at that time, video on demand was oh, wow. starting to become really hot, um, and uh, there were some early trials about video on demand in Orlando in around 1994, which had closed. Uh, people were really interested in this problem that if you know if a large number of people request. A content like a new movie comes out and everybody wants to watch it. How would we deliver it right now? Today, that's not a problem. At that time, it was a problem because we didn't have enough bandwidth, and we didn't. There wasn't enough bandwidth at server farms to actually deliver this. So you had to do some smart algorithms to actually deliver content. The internet was very lossy. So how do you, uh, you know, how do you deliver streaming, good quality streaming video without actually the video looking choppy? Uh, so these are sort of the things that we worked on, which was really really fascinating. Uh, really cutting-edge stuff. And um, that's sort of was the background and, and you know, to my appreciation for, you know, what technology can do. And, and then over time, as 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 a researcher, you sort of change focus and you work on different problems. I worked on uh, machine learning problems very early on. And uh, so my training is in, in basically computer systems performance, which is essentially building computer systems that can scale and that work in a distributed fashion. Uh, but One of the key things that I started doing around 2004, 2005 was thinking about how to apply machine learning technology to computer networking or data science problems. And and I think, uh, you know, one of the first papers we wrote on that subject, that was not, machine learning was not the thing that everybody talks about. It was not the same thing as that. Nobody talked about machine learning, right? In fact, in the academic community, we would say that, you know, the AI folks are the people who are actually only doing uh, theoretical work with no practical application. Now today, actually, they feel very vindicated because all everything that they've done is actually being applied. So it was the systems folks like us, you know, the networking folks and people working in databases who were starting to use machine learning around that time. So uh, I feel a bit fortunate that you know we're all you know talking about machine learning and AI these days because you know I have this background of seeing where it came from, where it was. How the community felt about it at that time, and what sort of algorithms we could use. You know, most of the time, I didn't invent any algorithms. We used algorithms for solving problems that were interesting um, for you know various applications in sort of the computer uh, networking sort of space. So uh, that's sort of my academic background. But I didn't actually start considering investing until two thousand three, two thousand four. And the question would be why Well, I didn't have the money <laughs> because if, if you don't have it, you know, as a student, you, you get a stipend and you sort of barely, you know, and one of the things I wanted from my staff was I had a car, but, you know, you basically eat, <laughs> sleep and live and you don't have anything left really for investing. So I actually considered uh, investing first uh, in 2000, towards the end of 2003 when I got uh, the job at Calgary and I made my sort of first investment uh, in 2004. Which was basically, I just walked walked up to my bank and said, "Well, you know, I want to invest some money." So, you know, had a banker who sat with me and basically said, "Well, here are some options." You know, they're basically uh, what we would call mutual funds. So, I bought a bunch of mutual funds at that time, and that was sort of my you know diversified fund, international, international diversified uh, Mm. uh, index equivalent at that time. So, that was my first purchase in two thousand four
0: seems like a sensible way to start investing. Anaband, because you were working on these things, you know, such as machine learning um, and these, you know, databases and, and just all information systems, generally speaking, could you see, even though you were looking at it from a, a research perspective, could you see the applications in in business and the potential for these early on?
1: Yeah, So that's, that's a great question. So when, um, uh, so Derek Eger, uh, and I and a couple of uh, the other students that we had in the group and um, Professor Iga, he had, a, he had a collaboration with people at Washington, uh, University of Washington and uh, University of Wisconsin. So it was at that time, at least in, within the group and within people there, it was clear that these technologies are going to become very important. So there was, you know, um, the professors you know, had got a couple of patents done for some of the algorithms, for some of the stuff they didn't bother with patents. Uh, one of the things that you know this this is this is an interesting type of call a lot of times people think that well, you you know, just make the patents and have them there because if somebody needs the patents they're going to probably buy out the patents but um, starting a company uh, was I guess you know the professors had discussed and then decided well you know it's too hard or you know it's it's not something that they wanted to do and things like that so um I was across what was going on, and across other things too. Like when I started working, we had, uh, you know, like most universities would have uh, innovation centers where they partner with people, you know, trying to do startups. So the, the, you could see application of technology, uh, like cutting edge technology being applied by startups. You could see um, you could see where these things are likely to head, but. I would say at that time it would be almost be impossible to predict that something like, say, YouTube or Netflix would happen. You know, at, at around 2000, it would have been very hard to make that prediction, uh, right? Or people were, inter- you know, people. That's a. There's a lot of business model things that come into play when you think about things like uh, YouTube and Netflix. Like, so YouTube basically being a user-generated content distribution platform, right? So they solved for the the key problem. So to backtrack, we had re- we had a prototype for uh, video on demand system. So we had a scalable, which could basically scale, which could handle say, hundreds of movies and deliver on demand content with very little startup delays. Uh, but, well, we could do a company, but then we'd have to find the content. Right, so at, at one of the big things was the business model mm-hmm. at that time, right? The, the business, and, and Time Warner was doing a trial that had done a trial at Orlando and unfolded it. 1994 mm-hmm. to 1997, they ran, it, ran a trial. And they folded it largely because, again, there was issues about, well, you could do the trial. Their, their technology would have worked in Orlando but wouldn't scale, right? So therefore, it's it's not a global system or a, you know even a mm-hmm. nationwide system, so to speak. And for us, we had a system that might have worked, but, um, you know... Uh, how would we get the content? So there, there was, you know, there was a business model issues, right? Finding content, which interestingly, YouTube solved the other way by saying, well, you know, people upload the content, which is interesting. So there's therefore no issues with getting mm. content, right? And Netflix sold it the other way around by basically saying, well, I'm going to just get, uh, I'm going to do DVD by mail. And then as I build out my platform, I can go to some content providers and say, well, you know, are you willing to give me the content to host on my site, right? So their primary business was DVDs while they were doing um, uh, the um, the video on demand, right? So I think the the issue often is is twofold. I think for for good investments, you need a good business model and you need good technology and you actually need both to work hand in hand. So, you know, that's a mm-hmm. uh, sort of a roundabout way of saying that you can sort of see what's happening, but you can't really even if you have your pulse in it, it's very difficult still at early stages to predict what's actually going to work out and how it's going to work out.
0: Mm. And this is the thing, I I think, with these early stage businesses, which I'm sure we'll get to, uh, you were at the coalface with some of this technology, and you were still recognizing some of the challenges. Yet, as you say, it was too hard to predict who would be the winner or if there would be a winner. Um, Were you surprised that, YouTube became the dominant platform like all these years later. Are you surprised that you look back on it and you think, you know, I thought maybe it was someone else or a different type of business would have solved this problem?
1: Um, Well, okay. So here's the thing, right? So what happens is YouTube um, started really getting traction around 2004, 2005, right? And um, so I have an interesting story with YouTube. I had a student um, who actually has been very successful, and she, she was another registrar and she came to my office and, you know, she started actually doing masters and she, I had got her looking at some machine learning based problem. And she came to my office and said, how about we study how the traffic patterns are evolving for YouTube? And this is about 2005. So at 2005, we actually started collecting data on YouTube traffic in this, the local networks, So the, the University of Calgary's network. And we could see some very interesting trends of how YouTube was being used. I would say around 2005, 2006, I had no surprise in my mind that YouTube would actually be really successful because they had some very, very interesting properties. Like you could see that there are thousands of videos, but only some actually mattered and everybody actually flocked to those popular content. So they had like this predator style distribution of things and they could do really interesting things based on the fact that they have skewed popularity distribution and in fact they, f- they were able to feed on that because they were what they were really doing is basically saying well these videos are really popular and therefore surfacing them up for other people to watch while trying to also discover interesting new content so i'd say that once sort of the technology starts getting some traction it is easier to tell which one is actually going to fly of course again there's there's uh, this could have played out differently right because i mean youtube ultimately got acquired by google and you know, it gave it, you know, gave them all the sort of the engineering muscle needed to actually scale the service over time, um, and the business model, early business model, who knows what the early business model was, but the, you know, the, the current business model is basically ads, and that you know would have played out, I guess, differently had YouTube not acquired, had been acquired by Google. So again, there's always, I think, a lot of um, doubt in terms of how things may shape up for early stage businesses, but. The, the fact that YouTube could actually be, be successful as, in terms of popularity of the service, I think that was pretty was, was well-established by, I think, 2005, 2006. I think in 2006, Time, uh, time Magazine put YouTube as, uh, as, as sort of the person of the year. It basically said you as the person of the year as a tribute to user-generated content. So yeah. so almost like at that time, you could see that user-generated content is going to be king, and, you know, from maybe 2005 onwards to now, user-generated content is king. And then with various manifestations of user-generated content, right, whether it's Facebook or Pinterest or Instagram, but they're all user-generated content that's actually driving this uh, this boom. So I think that was pretty clear at that point, that user-generated content is going to be king. Mm-hmm. But whether or not, which business is, again, a different question, because you really need to understand the business model the economics, Um you know their go-to market. That's a whole different ball game. But identifying the trend once the trend is established, mm. I think if you're in that area, I think you can do it.
0: Mm. Mm. Um, and we'll come we'll come back to that in a few moments. But maybe we can just go back to um, effectively the the segue from uh, your research career into investing because you bought that first share or sounds like it was a mutual fund. Mm-hmm. Index fund like. Um, how did it come to be that you came to Australia and ended up at the Molly Fool? <laughs>
1: That's interesting. So uh, I spent from 2004 to about 2007 uh, in Calgary, and and then so the family decided we we're going to go back to India. So then I went back uh, to India. Uh, my wife was working at uh, the All India Institute of Medical Sciences, and I, I decided uh, to take up a professor, professor position, uh, an academic position at um, Indian Institute of Technology at Delhi, and. Sort of, I think for me, what happened is after having spent so many years outside of India, um, getting used to India was hard. <laughs> it, it just, it was just a tough, mm. tough switch. And uh, so, you know, I had, I had these, uh, you know, mutual funds that I had purchased. We basically sold, every, uh, sold everything around 2007. So basically I missed essentially the GFC. <laughs> Altogether, uh, you know, the GFC. For me, the GFC did not happen in many ways because I was in India. Another time, I was you know, I was I was not investing, uh, or uh, we had some investments through the, the, the broker, but it was like you know, uh, it was not significant of any form, so it didn't really matter. Uh, yeah. And uh, and so between 2007, sort of April May to uh, 2009 February. Um, i was in uh, in india but it just it's sort of getting used to it. and maybe i gave up too soon i and i you know and i think about it in retrospect maybe i gave up too soon it, it, people usually say that if you if you can survive 2 years at at and an I, I an iit is like a top class school with really smart kids so you know you basically have to find something that you can find be passionate about and and then you sh- you should be able to stick but you know people usually sh- say that you know, if you stay for 2 years then you're going to stay but if you if you leave, with you know, if you're going to leave, you're going to leave under two years, and I've seen that happen with a lot of, a lot of the colleagues because they sort of attract top talent uh, from all of you know, basically Indians who have gone abroad and done different things, and they try to attract those people back. Um, but yeah, I didn't mm-hmm. stick around for that time. Um, and I was looking for some, uh, uh, for some other options, and uh, an interesting option came up in a place called National ICT Australia, which was sort of a government funded a uh, sort of premier research laboratory set up in Australia. It was set up in, during the Howard government days here. And uh, the, sort of the idea was to try to build some sort of Silicon Valley equivalent uh, in this side of the world, mm-hmm. realizing that, you know, we don't have something like that here. And the, the model was interesting. The government would, would fund in four-year cycles uh, this institution called NICTA. And NICTA's goal was to hire some of the best people that they can from within Australia and abroad, and and sort of create that hub, and this was where you would do research, and also be involved potentially with spin out of companies. So you could you could do commercially, you could do either commercially applied research. You could do theoretical research if you wanted to. You could do, commercial, but you could also apply research to commercial. So, so NICTA, for example, has spun out. Um, a bunch of companies. Uh, I guess a, a good example of a Nicta spin out that people might be familiar with is Ordnate. So Ordnate was actually spun out from, uh, from Nicta. Uh, there are a few others, uh, but I think...
0: Uh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. That's right. I do remember that. Yeah. 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 So
1: Ordnate was actually a spun out from Nicta. It's actually from the same group I was used to work with, but you know, they, this had spun out just before I had joined. So... Um, yeah, so 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 that was sort of the idea here, okay. and I thought this, this is interesting that you know I don't have to choose between going fully commercial, but I could be involved with doing some research that maybe is, can be applied, and uh, sort of like the people that were involved, so I came here, and uh, so yes, I spent about um, from 2009 to about 2015 working at Nikta, and it is sort of here that you know you know that this was the f- after a while that we had this. You know we had sort of decided we to stay in Australia, so we had, we, we had some longer term stable outlook. Uh, we had some income coming in, so you know, investing sort of was then sort of the next thing to think about. So, so again, actively considered getting into investing around two thousand nine, uh, sort of mid two thousand nine. as back looking, and I was back looking at the ASX, um, and. I think all my initial investments in the ASX in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, were just horrible. <laughs> uh, I made, I think I made all classic. I made, I have, I think I made all the classic mistakes that anyone could make. I, I bought a bunch of mining companies that you know, exploration companies. Um, um, you know, I made, you know, I made these decisions based on familiarity. So. Uh, as I mentioned to you, and you know, I studied at Birla Institute of Technology, uh, I know the Birla House is a big de- is a big deal in India. So the, the Birlas had um, a mining co- mining company here called Aditya Birla Mining Limited. Uh, so I bought shares in that, you know, thinking, well, you know, they have a huge backing. They have a, you know, they're going to uh, they're mining copper here. They would mine copper and then take it to India and you know melt it there. Uh, but the, what I forgot or I should have remembered is that middleers are very shrewd business people. They would not run a, um, run a mine on loss. <laughs> so so what I found what these guys did, was very what's very interesting, if the copper prices went up, they would operate the mine. The copper prices went up, they basically shut down the mine. <laughs> just to basically shut down the mine, you know. Right. Uh, They'll just close it, no mining. Because you know, you know, and commercially I think for them it made sense. They were the majority shareholders at like 51%. Um, so you know, for them, spending money on on a loss-making operation made no sense. And um, so anyway, so I made I I also at that time bought into uh, another company. A lot of Australian investors must have bought into called Linus, um, the the rare the rare earth oh, yeah. miner. And and I had a beautiful story about rare about rare earth and how it's important. And you know, they're mining their uh, their plant in uh, Malaysia for refining. Uh, but gosh, gosh, that company had s- such trouble, sort of, you know, ramping up. It's so actually now producing stuff. At that have I own shares. They were not producing anything. They were just, you know, still in the mining sort of phase and trying to ship stuff mm. to Malaysia and getting this plant operational. Um, so I made all the classic mistakes, and I, and you know, I, I forgot to do the detailed research that, you know, rare. Rare earth doesn't really mean that it's rare. It just, you know, somebody decided to give it the label "rare." What I discovered is that as soon as um uh, majority of this, it's rare maybe in certain parts of the world. As soon as the Chinese um uh, firms decided to ramp up capacity for production, the price would come down, and then this uh, this plant in Western Australia was no longer feasible, so they had to, you know, stop. So. Uh, yeah, did all the classic mistakes uh, uh, around around the two thousand nine, two thousand ten sort of mark, and around the same time, the actual Motley Fool sort of launched. I think the Motley Fool launched here in Australia around two thousand eleven, and uh, so I don't know how I just landed up on a Motley Fool website, you know, and I started reading the stuff, mm-hmm. and I sort of identified a lot with the. The the way the communication was being done, so the communication was targeting uh, people who wanted to learn about finance, but in an easy way, or wanted to learn about investing, but in an easy way, and who probably didn't necessarily need to have a finance background, right? And that's very powerful from an investing mm-hmm. point of view. Like for someone like me, who you know, I can understand numbers, because, but I don't have a finance background, like I don't have a finance degree, right? So. Mm-hmm so for me that language really mattered a lot so i, I so between 2010 and 2011 is where i discovered the Motley Fool read a lot of articles a uh, joint share advisor here in australia which was sort of the first service um, as a member uh, that was launched here and and through in the share advisor i had a bunch of us recommendations after which, and which that's sort of where my sort of light bulb sort of flipped in my head and turned on and i said how huh, you know, here are the, all these interesting companies, Netflix, and I understand what Netflix is doing. And here's, you know, a smartphone company called Apple. I understand what it's doing. So that's how I sort of landed up uh, finding the fool in the U.S. And I became a member of, uh, you know, Rule Breakers, and, uh, which is run by David Gardner, a Mo- multiple co-founder, David Gardner, and uh, and Stock Advisor in the U.S., which is run by uh, Tom, uh, our CEO, the multiple, and um, and David uh, so they run, on, you know, they have like two picks a month. And and sort of that style of finding, um, you know, these, these companies that are sort of, you know, at the forefront of innovation, that are, you know, growing quickly, that are doing interesting things that are actually having an impact on society. And you could see a lot of these companies are actually technology companies. And I could see how a lot of these technology mm-hmm. companies uh, are doing things that actually I'm really, really familiar with. So that, that really piqued my interest. And I thought, hey, this is, this is really cool. So I should start digging in and, you know, try to understand what these companies are, you know, picking up annual reports, um, you know, looking at their earnings calls. And so that's where it sort of started. And that's what I really got interested because I could now see, well, these are the research papers I'm reading. This is what the companies are talking about. And there is a connection that you can establish. Almost always what you would, I, I found is that there was a lag? The stuff that I had heard five years ago is actually being done now, right? And mm. and even for people, what I, what I felt is that a lot of these things, you know, people talk in generic terms, but you actually can figure out. Well, this is actually that particular technology that's been used, which was done there first, and you know, published there, and and then developed for the you know for several years before it sort of became common knowledge in the academic community, and that's now sort of seeping in slowly into the business community. And and then that's having its results in terms of how, you know, the company is evolving. So that sort of became my thing that, okay, there is a big opportunity here to think about application of technology and how technology companies are using them to sort of, you know, grow their markets, you know, do new things, find new customers, you know, launch new services, etc. right? And um yeah, so that, you know, that became the passion at that point. So spent a lot of time doing that uh, then uh, over in the in the us the the fool has this program called uh, what's what's now called farm team sort of, which which basically means they had this thing called ticker guides and 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 the ticker guide basically is a person who promises to follow one or two or three companies whichever companies they're following and they would post on a board so I was a prolific board poster um, on the multiple forums in the US, uh, especially for, you know, companies that I enjoyed and I did, did my deep dive something. So, and, and I was trying to learn things from other people who have been investing for 20, 25, 30 years. Like, okay, okay, what's your framework? And, okay, this is how I'm thinking. And a lot of back and forth with interesting um, community people who are, you know, uh, really interested mm-hmm. and delighted about, you know, uh, investing, all things investing. And that's sort of what, uh, got me even more interested, and that, that's sort of my journey. At which point, I thought, you, you know, there was a point at which I thought it would be really cool to actually do this full time instead of doing this on your spare time. Um, and, and that's what made me think, okay, well, you know, maybe I need to try to find a job that allows me to do this. But as uh, you would be familiar, it's really hard. You know, if I wanted to find another academic job, it's or a research job or a job at, you know, as a as an engineer and a research, as as an engineer uh, in, in in a company, I could <laughs> because I have the experience to show. But how would I find a job uh, in a finance company if I have no experience to hmm. show? So I, I should first apply for a Motley for a Motley job at the Motley Fool in, and I had applied for a few others and in sort of 2015. Just see what happens. And I think the first time that I applied, uh, you know, I got a Thank you for your application letter. And I said, okay, that's fine. Uh, never give up. Try again. <laughs> so, so I tried again, yep. uh, and uh, you know, I got I got an interview, and you know, and I was, at least when I got the interview, I was able to demonstrate. I look, you know, I'm interested. Yes, I might not uh, know as much as you guys because you guys have been doing this, but you know, I know something. I have something else to offer that I can sort of you know marry here with investing, and uh, so Joe Mega. Uh, was the hiring manager. And he hired me in, in 2015, August, to work on uh, Motley Full Pro, right? Recognizing sort of that I had worked in the past, done, you know, uh, these things on the forums. I was, you know, contributing to the forums. I was writing forums. I was ticker guiding and things like that in uh, on on various talks in in the U.S. And on the US, U.S. boards. And that's sort of how I lined up in the full
0: Hmm. There's so much to unpack in your story there, um, which we'll get to in just a moment. But um, did did now that now you're you know director of research at the Motley Fool Australia, lead Motley Fool Pro and Motley Fool Extreme opportunities? Did Joe ever say why he hired you? Is it because of the technical background plus the the passion that he could see on those boards? Is that principally what it was? Do you think?
1: Uh, this is a question. This is a question for Joe <laughs> to answer. Um, I, I don't. Um, well, I, I think one of the things, if if I might generalize this, I think one of the things that I think we at the Motley Fool have done really well is we have tended to hire people not necessarily based on their financial background, right? And, and I think this has been a strength of the company in. Is to is to hire people. Is is the name motley, right? I mean, you hire people with different backgrounds because then there's different backgrounds. It's it's almost like one plus one is not two, but more than that. Because, um, but the addition of people with different experiences allows us as a group, I guess, to look at companies differently, right? And that's an edge because you know, effectively, one could say. You know, and I, I don't want to generalize this, but one could say that if you just look at companies as numbers, then well, effectively you're going to have no edge, right? Because machines can look at companies as numbers as well, and they would probably do it much better than in humans on average, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you, it, investing just based on, say, PE or revenue growth or uh, you know, gross margin growth or anything like that—anything that can be formal formulated into uh, a decision tree. Or can be formulated into a, one of the machine learning algorithms. Human beings over time would have no chance, right? So in in fact, qualitative mm-hmm. factors are where I think we have the best chance of being different than machines, right? And I think that's sort of you know that sort of theme where qualitative thinking and you know qual you know different experiences actually add value. I think you know I would say that. That's sort of the thing we try to look at when we are when we are looking to hire people. Is that you know what is it that they can bring uh, in terms of their thinking that's different, novel? You know how do their life experiences shape their thinking about the world? Because that's very critical in sort of long term investing, right? You know, you you in long term investing is really all about figuring out where the world is headed, right? So you know you want to know where the world is headed. So sort of have a rough picture of where the world is headed, and then try to invest based on that right? With short-term investing, we really a lot, okay, you know, are the earnings expectations going to be met, right? And and, and I think they're two different things. So I think that's a qualitative thinking uh, focus. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing I'd say is that at that, that point, there was a lot of interest here at the full to look at um, things like um, focus a lot on on software. Uh, and had had a mm. computer science software background and understanding of, you know, software technology, um, technology such as, you know, how how software interfaces with humans, right? And understanding that or where you would apply machine learning, where is it useful to apply machine learning, where it may not be, you know, because, you know, and it's very easy for companies to say, well, you know, we are applying machine learning or we are doing, and, and, and they might be because a lot of the code base is freely available, right? I mean, there's a piece of software called Weka which you you know it, uh, it's basically open source software for a lot of machine learning algorithms. You can just download it and apply it, <laughs> right? Question, but you know in, in in computing we would say garbage in, garbage out. You know it also depends on what you're inputting, what you're trying to solve. If you don't know what you're, do, you're trying to solve and what you're inputting, you're going to get garbage out. So this you know it's very easy. I think to say that you, you, you you're applying machine learning, you're a learning machine learning company, or an AI company. So how do you sort of separate those out? Do you, know? you sort of you know, having a little bit of an eye for that would be helpful. So some of that, but I think it's just the, at a high level, it would be the difference in experiences because we have, we have a lot of non-traditional people in in the company.
0: Mm, you, you do indeed. This, this conversation is kind of just bouncing around as we go through some of the the, the things that we wanted to talk to you before we set out. Um, and one of the things that's kind of going to take us on a bit of a tangent is you mentioned earlier on, and I was going to ask this when you talked about your research days. Um. The kind of the kind of lag between the the technology in the academic sphere, and then the implementation of that in the commercial sphere. Um, you know, you, we, we talked about YouTube earlier on. In the late nineties is when you were thinking about these technologies, but it wasn't until two thousand four two thousand five when you knew that YouTube was going to be a big deal. Um, and you know, we talk about um, Ordinate, which is on the ASX AD eight is the ticker code. Um, you worked on that many years ago, and it was spun out of Nicta. Um, Do you think that you having the background that you have and knowing that there's that time lag between research um, and proof of concept, if you like, and implementation of commercial scale, is that time difference your competitive edge or one of the key sources of your competitive edge as an investor today?
1: That's a great question. Uh, Just uh, I'll uh, I'll clarify one of one of the things. So I didn't actually work on Ordinate technology. So just so that nobody gets confused, um, you know, because Ordinate was spun out before I actually came in into into So just a small clarification. Uh, But you know, I know Aiden Williams. I've interviewed him um, in the past uh, for a full event. I've talked to them a number of times, and I really like the company. Um, So that is one of I, I have. I found that is a competitive advantage to some extent because um, knowing sort of where what the research. So so I guess if I had to backtrack. In in computer science, sort of in, in sort of the science world, you know, people solve problems that they think are you know interesting and new, right? Mm-hmm. So an example might be that mm-hmm. you want to. Um, you want to figure out how to stream movies quickly, right? That's an example. Or it could be you might be interested in a problem such as, you know, how do we make um, the distributed energy sources all work together? Right. So these, you know, at a very high level, people will structure a problem and then try to find solutions for that problem. And sometimes it would involve making changes to the existing landscape. Sometimes it would involve inventing new things for it. So understanding that and is is useful because what if you think of the pipeline of uh, of innovation, right, you have professors and researchers doing research. So those are the same people actually teaching undergraduate students. A combination of people who are doing engineering degrees and are doing research and graduating out of research programs, other people who are actually going to go and work in companies. So the ideas basically flow from, in many ways, from academics down to the industry in that sense, you know, it's the flow of people that's, and the flow of ideas. And the ideas are all public domain, but really it is the ideas travel with the people to a large extent, right? So uh, that really helps, right? And knowing that flow and knowing where to look, actually, it really helps. If you know which sort of places you're looking at um, and are there sort of, you know, the, the bleeding edge, as I like to call them, that would really be helpful.
0: Hmm. Because this is one thing I think about from, so if we take that that flow analogy and we apply that to investing, what I see oftentimes is that some really good investors uh, come through the system and they might come through for five or 10 years, right? And although it's pretty crude and harsh for me to say, sometimes those investors generate a lot of alpha because... They have some type of skill set or toolkit to look at problems that are affecting people here and now. And I think you know this better than I do, that if you solve a problem too soon, it may not get the, uh, you know, you mentioned Time Warner earlier on, it might not get that adoption. Um, if you solve it too late, then you're too late to the party. And what I find with investors is they kind of find this problem. Like, let's say it's, um, you know, hyper growth investing or um, that B2C consumer sticky software that we see around now a lot of these companies are really doing well the next iteration in my mind might be b2b software or software purpose-built for developers like low-code environments those types of things i feel like with investing um it's kind of like you have a moment to analyze these companies through this this lens given what you learned from academic history or your work experience early on i don't know if i'm going off on a tangent here on but I don't know, that pipeline of ideas, do you think that pipeline of ideas also applies to the way we look at problems as investors? Or do you think you know this software stack that we see now, this is something that's going to be here and it's going to be here to stay for, for quite some time?
1: You know, that's a, it's actually a fantastic question. And, and I think about this a lot. And I don't have a firm answer, but you know, I have a couple of thoughts and these might sound like random thoughts, but I think there is... So I think one of the things that's true for, especially for software technology, the software technology changes rather rapidly. So, and and that's so. If you go back to the early days of the internet, the internet by design is is distributed. The algorithms are distributed. The the nodes mm. of the computer uh, internet are distributed, and the internet is fault tolerant largely because it's distributed. You can't break the internet that easily because things are distributed, and and it it sort of has these design principles that allow things to be built on top of it, which you know and and you can keep building, so you can build. The, you know, you can think of things as as layering on the st- of the stack, right? And more and more, it seems that the action is shifting to the top, right? So you know, you could you could say that in the early days of the internet, the main thing was you know how do you make the internet go faster, which meant you needed uh, to focus on companies the, such as Cisco uh, or Intel, which were building chips and building routers and you know you know building pipes that connect these various points, right? Now, once you've built that, you want to build applications that run on this. Now people are building applications on top of applications, right? To think of the ideas of, you know, app stores running on messaging applications, right? So this is like further abstraction. So abstraction is a big deal in in software technology and internet technology. Um, but, which basically means you have to just be agile, I think, in terms of how you're thinking about about different things because, you can very quickly see things move from sort of you know one area to the other. The other other thing I think is I'm really cautious about what I call formulaic investing, right? So if you think about formulaic investing, here's one way to invest in in uh, in coverage. You know, you can say, well, there are companies which have, which say have uh, a two sided network, right? You have the buyers and there are sellers, more buyers, more sellers, right? But once What happens though is once a lot of people actually understand that, that arbitrage that you typically get, you know, the pricing of companies. And I, you know, I know people want to talk about valuations, but let's, putting valuations aside the, the, the fact that this sort of network, network can keep growing for a long time until something happens is, You know, if a lot of people recognize that, then sort of the arbitrage that you get by investing early disappears because a lot of people are sort of investing, pushing the price up, right? So, you know, things like network effects, um, you know, or sort of the ideas around various types of modes that exist in software. I think that can be fleeting because to a large extent, what happens in technology is a big Once you have a winner, it wins, right? And if a lot of people have identified the winner, then, well, the price goes up. Then the next question to think about is how long is the winner gonna keep winning? And often it is not that the winner is displaced by another company doing the same thing. The winner is actually displaced by another company doing something completely different that makes the previous iteration obsolete, right? So, and, and I think that's a very important thing to realize. I, I think the, the thing to realize is you want to get into like this sort of investing. If you want to get these real multi-baggers, you want to get into companies relatively early, then you want to sort of own them for that life period where they're going to be interesting, growing, expanding. But you sort of have to also figure out, you know, at what point are they going to get disrupted? And I think, I feel like disruptions is, is likely to happen. Uh, at a more rapid pace now than in the past, for the same reason as innovation is happening at a rapid pace right now than in the past, right? So I think there's, you know, I think that is you know, if you're getting early, you have more upside. But again, if you're late, I don't know how much upside you have because when is the, uh, when is the disruptive event going to cause the current disruptor to be disrupted, right? Um, so, so sort of, I, I think again, it's, everything is a moving target here. And watching what is going on is is really important. And I guess the most important thing in my mind is you know people we can talk about modes, but I think the most important mode is how fast can you actually change? Your willingness to innovate is probably the most important thing uh, for a company. So a company in a company that can innovate at a rapid pace is the only one which is actually going to have the lo- you know the longer life, right? Uh, I guess lifespan versus the ones that are slow to innovate, which is, which has also you know where actually different you know uh, network effects happen. So one of the things that I try to see is that if your company is a leader in something and doing something very interesting, they are likely to attract the best talent, right? And attracting the best talent already puts you significantly ahead of the second best, because the best people are working here. They're coming up with the best ideas, which in turn. Causes other people who have great ideas to come and work here because they want to, you know, uh, participate in a great idea, right? So great ideas and an ability to execute on great ideas attract other great ideas until something happens <laughs> to cause that to, to be disrupted because maybe the, you know, you just became too comfortable in what you were, you were doing. So I think that's sort of, yeah. So I, I like to keep an eye on the innovation engine and how quickly people are trying to innovate.
0: I guess one question that comes from this then is how do you keep an eye on things? So, and this is a question that we got, I got asked to ask you was how do you keep on top of um, innovation? Like do you rely on certain resources, um, networks? Do you follow people on social media? Like how do you kind of stay abreast of that information? Because there's so much to take in, right? When we talk about all the different themes and and trends and technology today, it seems pretty overwhelming, especially for someone who may or may not have that, that grounding in, in the the hard sciences or computer science.
1: So there's, there's no, again, no, like a cheat sheet here. So a couple of things that I find useful, I find useful following um, technical conferences. So that's, you know, and I don't read the papers. I often actually just actually look at the abstracts and the conclusions and, you know, and I just know the venues to look at. So I look at the right venues, I think, and, and then just try to understand what's going on, get a picture. Another thing that I find valuable is if certain, there are, there are probably maybe two dozen, maybe odd VCs that are worth following. Because again, they're sort of leading companies before companies go public, right? So oh. they have their feet with the early, in the early sort of tech, right? So, and more and more VCs are, you know, willing to share what they're thinking about, how they're thinking, how the stacks, protocol stacks are evolving. Uh, sometimes there's, you know, they have different in opinions and things like that. But I think a lot of the knowledge is public. Um, that's worthwhile following. Um, the, so I think those are primarily the information I, I, I look at. And then, if I have invested, then sort of, you know, the company's earnings calls can also actually tell you, you know, give you good indications, or, you know, the investor days give you good indication. Because you could sort of, once you look at this enough, you could sort of say, okay, well, does this make sense? And, you know, is this problem real? And, you know, what is sort of the state of the art and, and things like that? Um, I guess that comes a little bit with experience. But I think following, um, I, I find following VC firms, Like you know, if you're in in software, for example, you you probably want to follow benchmark, right? If you don't follow benchmark capital, then like I mean, uh, or benchmark venture partners, then you're missing out on you know they're the guys who who are spinning out some of the best software companies of our time, right? And and the other thing that you know, the 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 folks at uh, Benchmark, for example, have done recently is they've released their uh their early stage pitch discussions and that's actually fabulous because you know you can see the story oh this company was pitched to us and so there's one on shopify for example and you know they had this expectation of where it is going to be and you can sort of look at that expectation look at the business then look at the expectation they had and see where it has landed and sort of see the divergence or non-divergence of their thinking right um And I think there's a little bit of, like, the type of investing I do, I think there's a leap of optimism involved, right? I mean, you basically have to be optimistic that the future is going to be better than the past. And you are investing sort of in the leader in that future and investing in that leader who's building a better future. If some of those companies work out, then you'll be fine. Like, I mean, it, it, it becomes a game of odds in that sense that, you know, If you do this enough number of times and you have a decent success rate of finding these, then I think the returns, the upside return is is large enough that it compensates for the downside return. Like what I say is that, you know, maximum you're going to lose hundred percent, but your upside is theoretically uncapped. So, you know, 110 X can make up for a lot of mistakes.
0: One of the things that always comes to mind when I think about this type of, um, like this hyper growth investing is that, Oftentimes, you know, there's the, the piece of like what companies or which companies and, and thematics do I want to be exposed to. Um, that can oftentimes be kind of the easier question for some people to answer, particularly if they're new to investing. The harder question can be, well, how do I weight those positions? How do I build my conviction? Mm-hmm. Would, you, would, you, would you say that it's more of a kind of like equal weight approach? You kind of just... You, when you, the way you think about portfolio construction is you take a piece and then you take more as the thesis improves. I think David Gardner's line is add, you know, to that excellence and sell mediocrity. Hmm. Um, is that something that you subscribe to?
1: Yeah. So that's actually probably the, my favorite line. And I think David Gardner is probably the most, um, you know, uh, I guess the the growth investor, probably one of the greatest growth investors who's probably the least known among the list of those great growth investors. So I think, that's, so this this line that I buy excellence, I add to excellence, and I sell mediocrity. This is this is fantastic because it it removes everything. And you know, people will say that, oh, there's no price component in it. But you know, that's you're betting on excellence to find those new things. And you know, also in, in a cynical way, you could say that. A lot of people have problems with excellence, right? If it is excellent, well, it is basically, it's likely to destroy some industry, some existing incumbent industry. There's going to be a lot of people oppo- opposing excellence because <laughs> excellence is also going to change the world and changing means that some things that are not that good are going to be left behind. Um, so it creates this really nice tension, which is, you know, often excellence is actually underpriced for that reason, that... There's just a lot of people betting against excellence. And this is, you know, one of the things that I've, I find very interesting is excellence. Is always there's a there's a there's a, the finding the excellence. You you are almost always likely to do well. Um, so in terms of position, to answer your question, what I do uh, personally, and again, this is you know, this is just what I do. And everybody's circumstances so is going to be different. I always start with a small position. So my starting point is like a 0.5 to a 1% position of my portfolio, and. That's what I start, and and then I'm basically just am watching the company, and I'm trying to understand because you know there's no way I can or anyone can, at least that's my belief, that know all that you really need to know about a company in two months of research, one month. Because you you know as the company evolves and has these earnings calls and it does things and new products come out and new services come out, things change, right? And and you really need to understand sort of that arc. So I, I really believe in starting like 1% position and then following. That 1% position is sort of, you know, my way of saying I'm going to follow this company. And then I think the other important thing, and I've done this mistake many times, is it's very hard to add when the price is up because the company is executing and more people have started realizing that this is a good thing. Actually, that's when the company has become de-risked, right? So it, the price goes up because it has de-risked, and its future is more certain than it was some time back, unless there was like large mispricing, for example. Um, so I would add on success as long as, and I'm a big TAM focused, so it's a total addressable market focused investor. If if I think the total addressable market is huge, then you know just by le- basically looking at the company's current market cap, company's uh, current revenue. Uh, you you can sort of guess what you know what the upside potential could be, and therefore you know if there is a, still a substantial upside potential, then it makes sense to add on success. So that's what, I, what what I do. Then I cap the last thing I do is I cap the total amount of investing dollars that I put into companies. And what I, what I mean by this is not the total amount of my portfolio, but the total amount of dollars that I actually put into the portfolio. And I limit that amount that I'm going to some. I rarely ever try to go beyond 5% of capital that I'm bringing into um, investing companies. I'm never really going to put more than 5% of that capital into a company, right? And that sort of prevents me from, you know, doubling down unnecessarily and things like that. It doesn't mean that the position can't grow. The position can grow to becoming 10 15 20% just by upside, right? Because if there's upside, then the position will grow. But I do limit how much capital I'll try to and I, I do it in phases
0: and we have a lot of people that come on the show who might be um charter financial analyst uh, designation holders or charter holders. Uh, we have people that have spent you know their research careers studying um, finance or investing and you know we often talk about value investing and the idea of you know putting a value or intrinsic valuation on companies. Given that um, you've kind of, you, you, you've kind of taken a different lens, or and you've got a different toolkit for analyzing businesses, and I think this is kind of the makeup of your portfolio construction as well, which is where this question leads from, is how do you think about valuation of these high growth companies? Because obviously, in the early days, the range of outcomes are very wide. Um, you know, are, are you putting traditional valuation models against these companies and saying, this is the discounted cash flow analysis, this is the discount rate for year one, year two, this is the terminal growth rate. Are you thinking that way? If you're not, I'd just be interested in your your higher level thoughts around, you know, maybe why or why not value investing, the traditional approach to value investing can't be applied to these companies.
1: So, So I think, well, I, I think... This can result in fights, right? What is buying investing and what is growth investing? I mean, investing is investing, I guess, is the answer. Hmm. I think here's the thing. Every company is effectively, should be theoretically valued as discounted cash, free cash flow, right? So you free cash flow into the future and you discount it back appropriately, whatever that discount rate should be. And and then, you know, but the problem is we don't know the discount rate, so We don't know what the free cash flow is going to be in the future. And we don't know how long into the future should we be looking at, right? Um, nobody would have predicted in year 2000, 2001, that Amazon today would be growing at what, like 25% <laughs> even today, right? Um, no model would have built that in. So that's the, that's the problem of building model. And, I've, you know, as, as a scientist, I built a lot of models. It was one of the things that I used to do as, as a... As a you know, in a computer systems performance guy, build models. one of the things that I know from models is all models are wrong. This is a George box line and very few are actually useful. So I do build models, but I only build those models, which I think can be useful for understanding. So, so one person, yeah, you know, and he's, he's a friend, Ryan Newman, uh, analyst who works with us. He can build fantastic models, which I think are actually useful. He can build a model for Afterpay, which is usually he convinced me to say, you know to build a position in um, in, in uh, for Multifile Pro uh, in Afterpay. Largely, you know, first came to me with the idea. I said oh, not Afterpay, you know, and and then he said, well, I'm going to show you a model, and then you know, build a model, <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, now I get it. I see, you know, I see where this thing is going to uh, and how this thing is going to work out. So. He, The model, it's not about the precision of the model. What he was able to show me was the economics of the business via the model, which I was, um, I guess, Mm. closing my eyes to the, okay, there is a decent economics here and the economics can actually keep scaling up and up and up um, based on how this business is working. So I think that sort of model is useful. I personally don't build very many complicated models. My framework is relatively simple. I try to find companies which are doing something very interesting and they're doing something very interesting that can be impactful, which, and then the thing I'm interested in is what is sort of the addressable market for this thing that they're doing? Then I do try to account for the fact that, you know, I look at the team and say, well, you know, this team is, is excellent and they have a, you know, ability to be innovative. They can innovate in other things. It's, it's, it's the intangible. There's a lot of value to intangibles, Right. So a person like Steve Jobs, right, he has been involved with how many companies and how many of them are successful. You think of that. He did Next, he did Apple, he did uh, Pixar, right? And uh, for a long time, the, the Jobs family was the largest shareholder of Disney because of the deal to sell Pixar to Disney, right? That's, you know, so the ability to, the ability to spot talent and groom talent is also a big deal, right? So... So I think you know I, I try to look at the team I try to look at what they're saying and how they're executing and and to be honest there are very few companies that in the world that have that bar of extremely high talent supreme innovation capability and the ability to basically take their brand and do different things right so so I think there you have mm-hmm. to you have to give that value to the optionality. Now, for the companies that don't have this optionality, then you sort of, you think about them, well, okay, um, you you are operating in, let's say, a, a business software, you know, business-to-business software space. How big is the opportunity? Who are the competitors? How much share are you likely to get? And, you know, and let's look at the current growth rates and think uh, how far you can continue maintaining that growth. I think one difference, one, one of the important things is to realize that if a company is growing at 50% today, and this, this is a common mistake, it is, it is you know, what's the probability that's going to grow at 3% year 11 onwards? You know what I mean? Like, that's the problem with taking a traditional model. So there's nothing wrong with a DCF model. The problem with the DCF models that get built is, well, they take the terminal rate of 3% or 4% or whatever it is year 11 onwards. But if a company is growing today at 50% or 80% or 100%, it could potentially be growing at 25% on year 11, (laughs) And that, the terminal value is going to then account for a mm. lot of the actual value of the company. So that's classic case is Amazon. Like, I mean, you know, um, another thing that I like to do is I draw parallels. So, and it's not perfect, but it sort of tends to work. Like, a, well, if you want to compare Amazon, look at Amazon and then compare that with, say, Walmart, right? And you can say that, well, Walmart's revenue is this. Amazon's revenue is this. Technically, there's no reason Amazon's online sales or can't actually match Walmart over time because the pie is also growing, right? I mean, over time, the other thing that we need to realize is the pie is growing. So the middle class is growing all around the world. So the pie with the pie growing, yes, there's more competition, but um, companies can grow. So I think the fact that they can grow for a long time is very important in, in sort of the framework and approach I'm using. And the, then I'm willing to be wrong for a long time as well. That's the other thing, right? I'm willing to be wrong for a long time as long as I don't lose faith in the team. And, and the thesis. Because sometimes it takes time, right? You know, there are companies like, take an example. A company like Disney, price would not have done anything for like four or five years until they did the pivot. So sometimes you also have to think about the ability of a company to do a pivot, right? And then I think here it's important to realize that not all companies can do a pivot. Some companies that have sort of the Brand recognition, the bandwidth, the uh, not the bandwidth, but the, the balance sheet capability and the flexibility and the cash flow generation to be able to do the pivot, right? Um, and I guess the IP that they have that allows them the opportunity to actually leverage that um, IP and do a pivot that, that is really important. So sometimes some companies can be late to a game and still win. Disney is a classic example. So I think again, company specifics become really important. But I'll just reiterate that in you know, a truly great companies, there are not that many in the world. Like, and and that you can you can also see that in returns, right? You know, the majority of returns are generated generated by a small percentage of companies. Maybe 20% of the companies generate 80% of the returns. That's true in the stock market. That should also be true for the portfolio. And if you try to, you know you maybe try to skew uh your portfolio to find those 20% companies that are actually driving the returns, and then if you have majority of those companies, you'd still see. 20% of the companies in your portfolio delivering most of the returns but it's just turns out that even your losers are actually doing better than an average company.
0: It's one thing that I've um, had to think a lot about because I I don't know but I I I have this online invest investor program where I teach people to do valuations and invest and one of the things that I taught in, in that course is you know you sometimes you do a discounted cash flow analysis over 5 years and it wasn't really until I learned more about this that you're right. Like we we kind of have this hard cliff that a lot of traditional value investing and value investing models fall off of, which is once it hits that forecast period, it kind of just sinks down to that three percent growth rate um, into perpetuity. When in reality, that's not the case for many of these companies. They're growing much faster than that, and you've got to, in my mind, you've got to model them accordingly. And I wasn't doing that, so I'd miss a lot of the upside because of that traditional value investing lens. Um you mentioned, you know earlier on, we talked about that buy excellence, add to excellence sell mediocrity. One of the questions that a lot of the people listening to this would have is, well, how do you decide when something becomes mediocre? Like how do you decide when it's time to sell? And, I, and, and I'm thinking, I know a couple of companies that you follow closely at Tesla and Apple, I follow Apple closely. Um, how, do, how, What would be a signal, like, hypothetically, what would be a signal that that company has slipped? Into mediocrity. You don't have to use those as examples. Um, there are many others, but what, if any, have you know, examples do you have that you could kind of lend us to to support that idea that we're trying to formulate in our minds?
1: Yeah. So let's take Apple, actually, because I think I can give a lot of context around Apple. Uh, you know, and, and, and because i both those companies as you mentioned, I, I, have, I have shares in them. So Apple is an interesting one because you know, one of the things that Apple has traditionally been valued at much lower price-to-earnings multiples than, say, the S&P 500. And that's because people have viewed, for a long time, Apple as essentially the iPhone company or a company that's tied to one particular gadget and so on, right? But I think here it it pays to sort of think, well, there are all these people that are willing to line up and buy Apple phones, that are willing to um, upgrade their equipment year in, year, in, year out. Uh, there are all these people who love this products that this company makes. Now, what is the reason behind it, right? And you can call it brand, but you know what I call it? I call it, and this is there in early Steve Jobs videos, is how the company thinks about their devices. They think of the company's devices as toolkits to enable things to be done. Or as I like to call it, I think of them as the best example of bringing human-computer interaction the human device interaction, they basically make the human device interaction seamless and so the, the device disappears from the foreground. Right? It becomes part of you and it enables things. If you think about a company as achieving that, that company's potential is immense because it can make itself useful in any context mm-hmm. where human-computer interaction is useful. And that's a skill. It really is skilled at making human-computer interaction or human-device interaction seamless. So that opens up opportunities, right? So if you think about, so, you know, when when Apple's PE that was dropping, I was saying, well, you know, this is silly. So they, and, and at the same time, you can also focus on financial saying, hey, this is a company that has cash flow like none. It is generating 60, 50, 60, 70 billion dollars every year. It has like a balance sheet that could buy off CBA. <laughs> well, and it is selling for like 15, 16 times earnings. This has got to be crazy. So, you you know, if you take that view and, you know, people have said there's no innovation at Apple and things like that. Well, you know, sometimes there are arcs that you have to follow. Like, you know, they, it would, they could design something that is going to replace the iPhone and then kill off their iPhone, I guess, revenue stream, right? And they've done sort of that by saying, okay, you know, we've got the Apple Watch, which is focusing on healthcare. They probably have something to do with Apple Glasses, which is going to probably replace the phone at some point. They're smoothly transitioning in people to new things, right? And as long as they can continue with this ethos of delivering this interaction, I think I'm fine with that company, because I think that company has the opportunity to, to find its way into different, like their foray into healthcare, right? They're the preeminent um, healthcare device in that sense, like 100 million plus people actually wear an Apple Watch which has got all these different features, right? And that's their door to doing different things. Their door, hmm. uh, you could also see that their, um, their focus on privacy, for example, right? You, know, you can just, you can call it hogwash, but their, their focus on privacy, I believe, has got largely to do with, A, their belief about how they treat their customers. So they're ba- basically making money off their customers and not selling customers' data. But B, if you want to be successful in healthcare, this is one of the things that you want to focus on is privacy. Right? you can't really be successful in healthcare if mm-hmm. you're not going to focus on privacy. And you sort of see you could see this arc and you know then, and, and, and then you see privacy and privacy aware computing. this has been a huge research area for the last five, six years. right So there are there are technical things happening in the background. there is thing, there are things that are happening in the foreground and then there are these devices and the experiences that you can make uh, that gives them the best shot at being successful. So I think following that, And of course, this, you know, at some point, a company becomes a bit like, you know, it's going nowhere. Like, you know, one of the most innovative companies of our time was IBM until it was not the most innovative company, right? That can happen. And at some point, you have to realize that happens. But, you know, what I sort of, and it's very hard, because you're going to realize after several quarters of um, missteps, because you can't, you know, you it's just the human nature would be that, mm-hmm. well, you know, one misstep, oh, okay, maybe not, maybe this, maybe that. I have not seen Apple making a step yet. Uh, so far, I think their focus on services has been excellent. Their focus on new devices has been excellent. And their sort of their way that they are uh, expanding their base is excellent. Um, the final thing that I like to remind myself is, I think you need to realize a company like Apple can make a mistake and still be great as long as your time frame is long enough. And an example would be Microsoft here. Right? Microsoft completely missed mobile. But the fact that it had Windows with a you know very sticky client base generating a lot of cash enabled them to invest in other things and they were successful, say, for example, in cloud, right? So uh, I think there are some unique companies where you can afford to take this look that, you know, I'm going to be very patient. So I mean, my, my theory is that I try to buy companies... Then I think are innovative, and then I delay my sell decision <laughs> as much as I can. I'm really not – I really don't sell. Like the only thing I might be doing is I might try to do some portfolio reweighting if I become overweight, but I really do not sell, and I don't see any reason – I mean, why pay capital gains tax? Um, and I know that some people would say that's not active management, but you know, as long as there is new money coming into my portfolio, I – I'd put my new money into something else, but I would not take sell something and move it, because again, that that just means I have to be right twice. I have to be right about the sell decision. I have to be right about the buy decision. And probabilistically, if you have a probability of say being sixty percent right with the sell decision and a sixty percent right with the buy decision, then the combined action is actually thirty six percent. It's a lower probability of success, right? and mathematically, it just doesn't make sense. So I try to make reduce those instances of you know, compound decisions, sell that, buy this. It's just a bad idea in my mind. I realize that some people would have to do that because they don't have new money coming in. But I think, you know, if you can afford to be a bit patient, I think it works out really in your favor.
0: I think that's one of the things that um, is good for someone in your position, you No, know, having being in a similar position with you running multifold Pro and um, Extreme Opportunities, you can identify businesses on the basis that you know the, the assumption is that um, your members would have money coming in and they have those they can they can invest for the long term because there's they don't have to manage the flow of money right they don't have to manage farm other than their own they can take that ultra long time horizon unabund there's, there's a, I, I don't want I don't want this conversation to go on for too long for for listener's sake but I do want to keep going on so it's, I'm kind of torn but maybe I'll, tr- I'll try and put some just some quick Rapid-fire questions at you. Let's do it. We close it off. Yes. So we're recording this in 2021. What would you say is the most innovative company on the planet right now? Tesla. Tesla. Yeah. Okay. It's probably got the best. team. dare I I ask why?
1: Well, well, it's got. It's probably got the you know the best entrepreneur of modern times. Uh, I think there's no doubt. You know, the person who can you know land rockets, uh, send people to space station, you know. Elon Musk does a lot of funny things, but Elon Musk is also very forward-thinking. And you know, he thinks like an engineer. So he doesn't think about local optimization. This is a problem a lot of people have. People think about local optimization. He thinks about global optimization. And there's a big difference between the two. It's easy to do local optimization. It's very hard to do global optimization. And he builds a team around that idea that you want to get to a globally optimal position. So I think that's a very big skill. And then people like Andres Karpathy, who's the director of AI, like, I mean, you know, just have look at the type of work he has done, you know, uh, at Stanford when he was doing his PhD. Those sort of people want to work in firms like this because it allows them to work on some of the state-of-the-art mm-hmm. problems and then actually see their solutions in action, right? That's a big deal for the best engineers who want to see their stuff actually work in action. So I think, again, mm. the most innovative company, I think, is, is Tesla's. But I would I would go as far as to say the best AI team today on the planet. Um, much better than uh, what you think uh, Apple has or Google has. Um, and I think they're also, there's a bit like Apple, they're very frugal with their R&D spend, but they get a lot of bang for their buck um, in terms of how, so yeah, in my mind, mm. they're, they're probably the most innovative company out there today.
0: Maybe I'll give you one more then. Um, which company do you think will be more profitable in 2030, Apple or Google? You know, I, don't know,
1: I don't know the answer to that one. Um, it's hard to say. If, okay, it depends actually how you define it. So are you defining total profits as total um, you know, net profit or cash generated by the business or is it based on – I mean, Google it's is
0: cash generated.
1: Cash generated, yeah, because Google already has higher margin. It's a higher margin business. Um, I would say I'd pick Apple, but it could be either. (laughs) My gut feeling would be Apple. but
0: I just know – I I put this one in as a a bit of tongue-in-cheek because I know um, how much uh, you enjoy Apple products um, and maybe in some ways – it's a bit of a contrast with Google.
1: Well, I, I think um, Google, Google is a great company. Uh, you know, I've recommended Google in at least a service that I run. Uh, again, it's a great company. Actually, has you know even the shares today are priced at, at a very, at, at a pretty reasonably, as I said. You know, if you look at free cash flow multiples, for example. So I, I think again, that Google is a great company. I think Apple's a great company. If it's share dollars, maybe Apple, but I could be wrong. Uh, the, my issues with google are mostly around privacy and uh and things like that. i'm not a big believer in selling um selling data um, for making money but well that's a business model
0: <laughs> mm, it is it seems to be profitable so far um okay so i've got two more questions one of them is going to be a bit longer but so but it's so interesting and i just had to ask this of you um Given your focus on technology, what are some of the industries or technologies that are you, that you are most excited about? Um, you know, maybe as an investor for humanity's sake, maybe as a consumer. However, you want to cut it up, um, what are you most excited to see, and, and what are you seeing today?
1: You know, from humanity's sake, I think a couple of things I think are, are, are very interesting. Or, or there are several things I I really think this um, the messenger RNA technology. Uh, that Pfizer and Moderna are sort of, you know, are examples of uh, the, for the COVID vaccine. I think that's really cool because this is plug and play uh, vaccine technology. You know, there you can modify the vaccines rather rapidly, and the efficacies that they sort of have got okay. are around ninety five percent. That's traditionally unheard of in sort of the traditional vaccine world, right? I mean, a typical flu vaccine has forty to sixty percent, for example, uh, efficacy. Um, so I think. The sort of, I think the progress, one of the, if there is a pro, positive that has come out of COVID, it is that probably people have realized that the the amount of time we spend trying to get these drug companies to actually move technology through the pipeline, it's way too long, right? And Mm-hmm. And it is I think maybe that, that, that there are other ways to keep it safe and still make it very efficient that's number one I think maybe that realization will come to and number two is this is the first time we have sort of seen application of this mrna technology which can actually be applied I think you know people were developing this for things like cancer and other you know dreaded disease like parkinson's and whatnot so that, that could be a huge leap for for humankind I think that's that's really I think leaps happening in space technology I think are really really cool because, um, you know, um, mm. that can open up a lot of other options in terms of not just interplanetary people, but, you know, even mining in, in outer space or using outer space for um, f- uh, for internet communication you know, to rural rural areas or places where you don't have um, good internet connectivity. Uh, I think that sort of is... Uh, Anabhan,
0: yes. I might just interrupt you. Yes. I, I actually bought the Starlink um, package, uh-huh. I don't know what you call it, where you get the hardware, you put the deposit yes. down. I bought the, based on your tweet and what you were saying about it, I went and I went and uh, put down my deposit. So when it comes in 2021, hopefully. Hopefully it comes in 2021.
1: Goes. Yeah, like I'm getting, you know, um, my NBN, you know, at peak gives me about 25, 30 megabits per second. This one can go between 50 and 150 Or 150 and 200, so I'm thinking, you know, somewhere around 100, low latency, and it should improve over time because of the way the technology works, with the more satellites and things like that, you know, algorithms and hardware over time. So again, I don't think it disrupts um, fiber to home or you know high speed internet in 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 sort of the heart of the city or in the you know inner inner cities, but it does make internet available to wide swaths of people that would otherwise not get internet. I think that is transformative, not just for the internet's sake, it's transformative for people because it would probably allow somebody mm-hmm. in rural Australia to actually do a startup because now they have got fantastic internet as an example, right? And then that extends not just to rural Australia, it could be Africa, it could be India, it could be anywhere, right? So I think, I think that, that's fascinating. I think those sort of things, and I, I think energy, alternative energy, and uh, green energy and distributed power—I think those are all great things for for the sort of society long term. I think I think those are sort of the things I'm, I'm excited about. Actually, none of these have got much to do in in that sense. It's all everything has software, but they're not none of these are primarily a software plays. If you think about it,
0: mm. yeah, there's so much to go on, Anuban. Um I've already gone so far through this conversation. Hopefully. Um, I can have you back on the show, and we can do this again sometime because you have so many insights to share. And Motley Fool members are privileged to to get these insights regularly, um, both through Extreme Opportunities and Motley Fool Pro. And um, one final piece, uh, one final question, one piece of wisdom that I like to get from all guests, as you know, is just the the one piece of advice you would go back and tell yourself about money, finance, or investing. You can also it can also be life advice, but something you would have told maybe to your younger self as you're doing those research. Um those theses what what would you have told yourself about investing in money?
1: Yeah, I, I think the biggest lesson for people would be that I think the earlier you start investing, the better it is. And I think that allows you a couple of advantages. You can make mistakes using a small amount of dollars dollars and learn. Um, and then you get better when you ha- when as your earning power improves over time. So you can actually make the most out of uh, out of your dollars. I think that that I think investing again is a is a very long term pursuit. Um, so keeping that long term focus and just investing early and just investing over the long term. I think investing can be very rewarding. But I think the other thing I would say is that you know find the passion in like you find businesses you are passionate about because that helps you learn about those businesses and also learn about areas that are sort of associated with these businesses and and you know learning itself by itself it's it's is a fantastic um, thing because it just broadens your mind broadens your horizons helps you understand different things so yeah it's a start early and and learn about the businesses you're investing in and yeah, and I guess um, take a long-term view. Those are the sort of three things I would say are are critical to being successful. And you know, uh, and I'm jealous of people who start at 20 and are going to invest till say, 60 because mm-hmm. they'll be very, very successful if they do it well.
0: Mm. That's that's wonderful advice, Anuban. Thanks for taking the time out to join me on the show today, mate.
1: Thank you, Matt. Thank you Matt, for having me.